my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. Giving the audience the power over the programming and not the advertisers for us, that's what we were saying with our campaign. It's not TV, it's HBO. We were saying that we're different. We're not like every other network. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman. Welcome to this episode of Math & Magic where we explore the entire range of business from the analytics to the creative. Today we have as our guest someone who really does embody both. He was the last CEO of Time Warner and was CEO of HBO before that in what could be argued was HBO's greatest decade of growth and innovation. It's Jeff Bucas. He checks all the boxes, by the way. Deerfield for prep school, Yale for undergrad, Stanford for his MBA, even started his career as that background might suggest, at a prestigious financial institution, Citibank. But in 1979, he made a fateful decision to give up that traditional and join this new media upstart that was trying to reimagine TV, HBO. And that path eventually took him to the head of Time Warner and, of course, before that, the head of HBO. Jeff and I have had 40 years of intertwined careers and friendship. He's not only a great business leader and a brilliant strategist, 
but he's a great guy with a terrific sense of humor. Jeff, welcome. Bob, thank you. You're too kind. We're going to dig into the real meat, but first I want us to warm up by doing you in 60 seconds. Okay, go. Do you prefer cats or dogs? Dogs. Call or text? Call. Curb your enthusiasm or sex in the city? The Larry Sanders show. <laughs> Early riser or night owl? Night owl. Slow and steady or pedal to the metal? Slow and steady. It's about to get harder. Smartest person you know? Jimmy Buffett. Childhood hero? The Swamp Fox. Technology you can't live without? Television. Favorite ever movie? The Godfather. First job? Bill collecting in Paris. Ooh, that's pretty exotic. Favorite ever TV show? Sopranos. Favorite Sopranos character? It's a tough one, man, but uh, I'm going with Tony. And finally, what did you want to be when you were growing up? A singer-songwriter. <laughs> okay, let's really get serious now. Let's get started by going back in time. By all outward measures, you had made every right decision in building toward a great life in finance. And in 1979, as I mentioned in the intro, you gave that up to go to this new upstart, HBO. And for those listening who weren't around then, HBO back then was only on in prime time. It ran some Hollywood movies and some pretty cheesy original shows, not at all what it became. So it took a lot of imagination and courage to make that jump. What made you make the jump? How did that happen? I always wanted to work in TV. And when I was in college, we had nightly movies, international movies, foreign movies. I was watching them every night. I wanted to work in Hollywood or in TV, and I got a job in the summer of 73, my junior year in college out in L.A. I was a gopher for a TV show that nobody remembers, the Diana Rigg show. And it was a sitcom. Occasionally, they'd send me around to get scripts or pick up extras. And once they told me to drive Diana Rigg from one place in L.A. to the other place, I didn't make it into TV. I got out of college. I tried to get into networks. I couldn't get a job. I ended up working at NBC News. The year after I got out of college, I was working on a gun documentary for Lucy Jarvis that actually got very well reviewed. After that thing ended, I got laid off. And, you know, if you're out of college and you don't have a job, I started thinking, what am I going to do? I basically failed to get a job like a lot of other people in that 74, 75 recession. So I ended up going to business school, which had not been any plan I ever had. And I worked in the summer at a winery. And I was actually going to keep working at the winery after. But then in an argument with my father, who was telling me, you know, you're working for a privately owned winery, you're never going to get anywhere. You went to a business school so you could sell wine. So I took a holding job. Not a, I wasn't trying to go into finance. I basically took a job at Citibank because I couldn't figure out what else to do and started trying to find another place. And I was looking at CBS, ABC, NBC, but they just wouldn't hire. So I found out about this HBO. I went over there and remember the guy who hired me, it was the president, Jim Hayworth, said to me, well, what do you want to do here? And I said, sales, as though I knew what I was talking about. And he said, well, you're a finance guy. And I said, well, well, no, I'm 23. I haven't done anything. I'm nothing. I just, uh, I figured that's your main 
business. He said, yeah, it is, but we don't have any jobs. So I'll tell you what, we got a job for you if you want to go. It's kind of not on the roster, but we're trying to sell motels to put HBO out on the marquee, you know, so if you check in a hotel, you can get free HBO. So my first months at HBO, I was driving around in rented cars in the Midwest in the Florida Panhandle, going up to motel owners and saying, you know, you ought to put HBO in this hotel. And they'd say, well, why? I said, well, because if you put free HBO out there, when people are driving in and they're trying to decide to go to your hotel or the one across the street, they're going to go to your hotel. Slowly, we got a few sales. And then, of course, as soon as one hotel motel would put up HBO, the other one across the street would do it. By the end of it, nobody had an advantage. Where did you go from there at HBO? So at HBO in those days, this is 79. We had less than a fewer than a million subs. At this point, there was not that much cable in America. You remember this from uh, MTV. I started in the cable business in 1979 as well. I remember. Yes. Yeah, so in those days, people got cable not to get a new programming service. They just got it so they could watch CBS, ABC, NBC, maybe an independent or something with clear reception. And so it was HBO that came along and then MTV right after. When's MTV? 1980? 1981. 81. Yeah. So, so we had been a few years before. So we're going around saying to people, cable operators, well, you could get more people to sign up or pay you a little more if you offered uncut movies in your home. And in those days, you could get basic cable, which is like five channels for six, seven, eight dollars a month. And you could pay seven or eight bucks for HBO, we'd get $3 and they'd keep the rest. What everybody forgets, you, you know it and I know it, is that back in the 70s and 80s, in order for people to get MTV or HBO, they had to build cable systems, string wire down all the streets, and they had to put satellite dishes in. And this was costing the cable operators a fair amount. So HBO was a product that drove cable builds and cable companies to expand. But in order to get franchises from the city politicians, think of St. Louis, Indianapolis, they wanted to be able to tell the government officials that they had a product for people that wasn't so expensive as HBO. So it wasn't seven, eight bucks a month, it was three or four. And it didn't have all the dirty stuff on it. So we had a kind of a mini HBO called Take Two. I'd forgotten about that. Remember, heard this, there was a thing called Home Theater Network. Showtime had their mini channel. We had ours. They were both really franchise offerings that no consumers wanted. Eventually, we figured out that on three, four dollars a month, you couldn't make money. It had to be seven or eight. So we invented a thing, and there was a task force: Michael Fuchs, Frank Biondi, Lee DeBoer, John Billick, and I were on this thing. It was called the Max Task Force. We needed to have a channel that had enough stuff on it that you could charge eight bucks for it and offer it alongside HBO. And it became Cinemax. I remember it well because actually my first job was running the movie channel, which was the first 24-hour movie service, which did really, really well until you launched Cinemax. And then it knocked the legs out from under the movie channel, and we eventually merged it with Showtime. Right. A little bit of trivia. By the way, just to put this in context for the folks listening, in this period of time, there was no home video yet, and there was no pay-per-view. So you had no way to get a movie unless the broadcast networks ran it 
on their movie of the week or something with commercials in it or seeing it at the theater. So HBO was really the service that opened up this idea of movies on TV all the time to the American public. You were the first mission-driven TV business. How did you describe that mission back then? HBO was always an idea. It's like America, right? Back in the early days of pay TV, and really continued past the year 2000, the main draw for people to sign up for Movie Channel or HBO was they wanted uncut Hollywood movies in their house. And there's two things about it. It's not only that they didn't have commercials interruptions, which really screws up a movie if you think about it, but they were uncut. Because everybody forgets. I mean, you thought you were watching up till then. You thought you were watching, you know, The Godfather or whatever the movie was on ABC Movie of the Week. But you weren't really getting the movie. They were cutting it for Procter & Gamble and Ford Motor because they didn't want to have racy stuff in there. If it was sexual, if it was language, if it was violence, if it was uh, political. So there was a huge draw that everybody forgets about. When we moved away from ad-supported movies into subscriber-supported movies. So people were not signing up for HBO so they could tune into a specific show that Sunday night. They wanted the range of shows that they were hearing everybody raving about. So that fact that we didn't have advertising is what shaped our original programming breakthroughs. And it led to what we modestly call the golden age of television because we were the only network with movie channel that didn't make shows for the advertisers we made shows for the audience and so that's what we were saying with our campaign it's not tv it's hbo we were saying that we're different we're not like every other network and that reminds me another big line from cable networks i want my mtv a huge breakthrough campaign and I think you were saying to your audience, you're in control. You want your MTV, you get your MTV. And giving the audience the power over the programming and not the advertisers for us was the key to it's not TV, it's HBO. So the, you know, the math of it is we didn't have advertising. That's the structural thing. And the magic was it's not TV, it's HBO. So we're going to come back to some of these lessons you learned there. But I want to go back further in time. You were born in New Jersey, started off life in New Jersey, then moved to Connecticut. Can you paint a picture of your childhood? We moved around because my dad wasn't taken off as he was a lawyer. He had tried to be a lawyer, but he didn't practice very long. I moved about five times, so we were always the new kids in some suburb in New Jersey. The continuity for us was that my grandfather, my father's dad, was a college professor up in New York State in the farm country. And so we spent every summer on a farm. We were basically country kids in the summer, and then we go back to the suburbs in the wintertime. So for me, I love my childhood because I spent all day with no shoes out at our little lake or running around in the woods. I loved it. I was there with my two brothers and my cousins. What kind of lasting impact do you think that had on you in terms of shaping who you are? I, you just had a feeling of peace. You know, if you're used to being out by yourself in the fields or the forest with nobody else around, the next farm was half a mile away. It's just beautiful and peaceful. Well, by the way, I would say, I've known you 40 years, 
I would say that actually most people would describe you that way. Of all the people I know who've risen to the top in companies, you're so calm, so collected, good humor. And so now we know why. Well, thank you for saying that. Let's jump a little bit. You go to boarding school for high school. Was that a positive experience for you? I mean, it sounds like you're talking about the suburban life, the farm, and now you're off at one of the most prestigious prep schools in America. And also, by the way, got to be hard as hell, too. How did that work out and what impact did that have on you? You know, it was a big thing for me. If I hadn't done that, we wouldn't be talking probably right now because for me, when you come out of the other side, if you look at all of us graduates, you can't really tell the difference three years after at the end between a public school kid from the suburbs that goes in there, which is what half the class was. I was one of those. Or the other half of the class, which were private school kids, and they all had all these, uh, you know, houses in the Hamptons or the Brooks Brothers stuff. I'd never heard of it. I got there. Some guy came down the hall and kind of flashed. He hit my lapels to find out what kind of a jacket I was wearing. I had a factory store, polyester from Norwalk. I wanted to fit in with this whole thing. You went to Yale at that point, a very progressive school especially in the era you went, late 60s, early yeah, 70s? Yeah, well, it hadn't been before. Yale, you know, it was a pretty traditional establishment place. And then every all the alumni got pissed off because Yale was getting so radicalized. Remember, they had the Bobby Seale demonstrations going in there. It was a pretty controversial time. And did they go co-ed in your time at Yale? Yeah, they went co-ed a year before I got there. Yeah. And just to give you the sad fact about it, because it went slowly, unfortunately, there were a thousand males in the entering classes, let's say, and there were 200 women in my class entering, and there were 200 women in the class before mine. So there were 400 undergraduate women at Yale and 4,000 male undergraduates and another 5,000 male graduate students. More Math & Magic right after this quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. 
OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time, with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm gonna talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic, and then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. Let's hear more from my conversation with Jeff Bukas. If you could go back in time and you could give your 21-year-old self some advice, what would that advice be? Just be honest. Don't try to pretend that you know what you want to do or that you know, let's say you're on a job, that you know something when you don't. Like you mentioned, I I had to go to these schools where everybody's trying to get in. People are always trying to build themselves into some kind of resume of the perfect person or something for whatever job they think they want to do. Well, none of us know what we want to do because we haven't done it yet. So if you get in that habit, which unfortunately now young people get in the habit of pretzeling yourself into something which may or may not be what you ought to do, you don't know. So you don't have the habit of trying to find out what you want to do. And you don't have the habit of expressing your actual impulses or natural inclinations, you're always looking for what do they want? What am I trying to present myself as? Try to keep that as minimum as you can. Because you want to get kicked out of places where you don't belong. Everybody's afraid, well, they're going to tell me I don't belong. That's not bad. That's good. This is not where you should be. Get out of here. (laughs) Say, fine. Okay. 
good, I'll go somewhere and see if I fit over there. You were a rising star at HBO in the 80s. You wound up being CFO. Along comes Steve Ross and Time, Inc. And by this time, HBO is a major part of Time, Inc. And Warner Communications merge. The first of the big media mega mergers. I was on the Warner side, and you and I really got to know each other, I guess, from that merger. How did that deal look from your side of the street? Bad. So Time Inc. was the parent company of HBO, this little, you know, guerrilla operation that was very scrappy because HBO was always threatened with extinction from either the movie companies that wouldn't sell us the movies or the cable companies that didn't want us to have high share of subscribers that we had. And we were the leader, so we weren't running scared exactly. We were well aware that we were chased by a pack of dogs, though. So we were always trying to move. We were always trying to stay ahead of what we thought would be that the cable people or the movie people were wiping us out. They both tried. There's some famous cases. The movie companies got together in 1981 and tried to stop selling HBO movies, and we sued them for any trust and won. And it was very chaotic because we were growing fast. And we had a lot of leadership changes. We survived it. Michael Fuchs who was a vital part of this. He was the guy with the vision and the chutzpah to lay the foundations for our original programming, which he saw more than any of us would become, well, the central thing at HBO. And he had the ability to do that. He attracted a brilliant team. These people are famous now in that world. They probably have more Oscars and Peabody's and Emmys than anyone in that category. And then the thing everybody now knows, because they're thinking of Sopranos or lately Game of Thrones, Bridget Potter, Chris Albrecht, Carolyn Strauss, creating really our original programming series business out of nothing. And this is when the big networks had 30 plus series each a week. That's 100 series on US TV with big stars, big budgets, big schedules to premiere new shows, audience flow, all the things you're supposed to have to have series and we had enough money for maybe two or three series and we know that the network series fail four out of five times our competitors have a hundred of them they've launched 400 pilots we've got enough for three what are we going to do and so we happen to get somewhat lucky we decided we got to be very different michael deserves the credit for that you know this show and i mentioned already larry sanders show i think was what put us on the map as a network that could really do something that changed uh, the genre that Larry Sanders was in. He basically put a new layer on what Johnny Carson and Letterman were doing. I mean, would you agree with that? Absolutely. It was fantastic. kind of showed us what we could do. The problem was, you know, we had a marketing thing. This is under Michael's time. We had a marketing thing for that. Big success for us. We called it the best hour on TV. And in fact, I think it was all, the joke was it was only an hour. (laughs) So Sanders was a half hour show and we had 10 episodes a year and we paired it on the schedule with another sitcom, very good show, Dream On, which starred Brian Benben along with Wendy Malick and Dorian Wilson. We called those two half hours. So let's say it's an hour block, 10 times 
in a year. We called it the best hour on TV. But we had 10 hours in a whole year. And here we have a 365-day program network that's on 24 hours a day. I mean, you know, we had literally nothing. So we had to, when the blockbuster came in and all of a sudden movies that you could watch on DVD in your house whenever you wanted to, was wiping out our previous selling point, which was, hey, a big movie from Hollywood on Saturday nights or Sunday night, but you had to watch it at nine o'clock. Well, let me interject because I was around the business then. The movie companies actually invented home video rental to try and get some leverage on HBO. HBO was that powerful and that important to them. And HBO used to play a strategy called Odd Man Out, where you'd leave one studio out of your buy so their movies wouldn't get any pay TV money. And it's so infuriated. I actually think it was MCA that started it that said, well, we can't have that kind of instability. So we're going to start home video and sell the movies. And of course, people start renting them and doing whatever. But just as an aside, that's how powerful HBO was in the movie business. And it's so powerful that it actually started its own competitor. Yeah, that's true. And also there was another competitor all of us inside used to fight about because when we had the one man out movie studio and we left Universal like a loaded gun on the table, I think it was 86 or 7, they weren't going to go nowhere. So it ended up feeding the start of John Malone's Encore Stars competitor. If you had Showtime Movie Channel together, we had HBO. We thought, ah, nowhere for them to go. And they created Stars, which not a great development for us because it raised all the movie costs and it created leverage for the cable operators against our cable deals. So let's go to the Warner deal. You clearly are vulnerable to the movie companies. And suddenly here comes a movie company, Warner Communications, and this merger happens. Yeah. Well, so one problem with the merger was it undervalued Time Anchor, it overvalued Warner's. Nobody outside cares. Inside, it created a problem because the Warner side, everybody got wealthy, and the Time side, everybody got wiped out. Then what happened was that because Steve was so powerful in his momentum, force, skills, etc., that he was really rolling over, as everyone expected that he would do. Now, this is Steve Ross, who was the CEO of Warner Communications. Yeah, and he was a unique guy with a huge and loyal following on the street and inside Warner's, and he was quite talented. And he was a real entertainment guy, which the timing people were not. They were magazine people. And so he was on the way to completing full, pretty much domination. And I think possibly all of what was all of us, the little brother HBO, were going to get wiped out. And then, as you know, because you were there, Steve died. And the Time Inc. people, really the HBO people, ended up integrating and coming back. Jerry Levin took over as CEO. You've gone now from a sales guy at HBO, CFO, COO, and then CEO of HBO. And so you saw this whole rise of cable reinventing the television business. And just as the internet was emerging for the mass market, you turned down the job to be COO of America Online. I know because I was on that board and was part of the recruitment effort. Why didn't you want to go for something new again? Was HBO now in your blood? Yeah, it was mostly that. 
Secondly, I didn't know anything about AOL online. I mean, I could study it and everything, but I didn't know really well how it worked. I thought all of you guys were much better to run it than I would be. And the other reason is I had a 12-year-old son. I wasn't about to move to California when he was in Connecticut. I wasn't trying to do anything. I was trying to stay at HBO. I loved doing HBO. We weren't finished with the transformation we were making at HBO. We wanted to have VOD get going. We wanted to fill out the original program. We just started with Soprano, Sex and the City, became Band of Brothers and all the things after that. And we were moving it international. I just thought, well, I know how to do that. I like doing it. Let's do that. As I said before, I never had a plan to go to the next job. Well, I will tell you that when I left Time Warner 2002 and AOL Time Warner at the moment, and you and Don Logan were going to replace me in that job, and you said to me, you know, I really love my job at HBO, but I think I got to take this job to protect myself against, could be an asshole that gets in this job. So I will attest to the fact that you were never plotting or planning your next move, that they just sort of always happened to you. Can I ask you this? So there were one time, you were the boss, you were the head of it. I was reporting to you. And we always got along. And you were saying to me something in one meeting. And I was saying, look, HBO is fine. Can you guys stop screwing with it? And I think when you and I alone in your office, and you said to me as a kind of a friendly test, you said, do you think that you could do this job? Meaning the one you had. And I said to you, let's see if you remember that. Look, I want you to be doing this job. There's nobody in this whole building that wants you to succeed in this job more than I do. Because I'm afraid if you're not doing it, I'm going to be, I'm going to have to do it. I thought it was kind of an impossible job. It sort of was an impossible job. Well, can I say on your behalf and mine, that was a terrible job. (laughs) (laughs) Look, inherently, it's not awful. It's a lot of fun. You got the music company and the movie companies and the Turner Networks. And, you know, there's a lot of fascinating businesses we have. But with the challenge at AOL, they think it was all, you tell me, was it a culture clash? Yeah, it's interesting. I do think it was a terrible culture clash. I mean, the reality was 2001, actually the financial performance of AOL Time Warner was substantially better than any of the other entertainment and media companies. But what I think it was, was remember AOL was about 40% of the free cash flow of the combined company. And the decision was made instead of taking that free cash flow and using it to continue to grow and evolve. You know, you could argue that with AOL Instant Messenger, all the services, that what Twitter did, what Facebook did, what Google did should have been AOL's future. And instead, they took that free cash flow and gave it to the cable company. And I think it was that voracious appetite that the cable company had for capital and starving AOL when it was the growth engine. You know, people sometimes say, wow, it was a great merger for AOL. And I said, actually, it was a horrible merger for AOL because if we had stayed an independent company, we would have continued to use that enormous cash flow and that huge leadership position we had and continue to Uh, you know, grow and evolve and buy new companies, add companies. As a matter of fact, right before the merger with Time Warner, we had a handshake with the eBay people to buy eBay. 
And so we were just gobbling up these companies and adding it to the uh, AOL. So I think it was probably that more than anything else. I think once it became part of a big company and was no longer the priority, it suffered. That is interesting. Now, you also owned a big, a big slice of Google, right? Well, the last deal I did, the board asked me, Dick Parsons, to make the decision, is we decided we were going to let a search engine take the traffic from AOL, which at that time, I think 50% of the traffic, internet traffic of the U.S. went through AOL at that time, and we were going to sell it. And Google did a deal. We actually had another bidder. We had between two. We decided to go with Google. And we gave them the search traffic for, at that time, an enormous amount of money. And they gave us, I can't remember, it was 5 or 10% of Google. Now, someone after my time, Jeff, I'm not going to say it was you, sold that stake in Google for billions of dollars, not hundreds of billions. Yeah, it was billions. That was when Time Warner was shedding debt because we had a debt problem. I didn't think we should sell it, but we did. And there you go. I mean, the irony is that would probably be worth a couple of hundred billion today. Yes. When you look at stuff in hindsight, it's really interesting. So let me jump to, you built HBO as one of the core team, shaped Time Warner. What role does corporate culture play in something like that? Significant amount, but it depends on which company. The Time Warner company, as we've been saying, came about by a series of mergers. So the Time merger with Warner, that was the biggest merger in media when it happened. And it was not like-to-like merge. It was industry leaders in studio production of films, studio production of TV series, music, Warner Brothers, merging with a big magazine company, an HBO and a cable company. Those are six different industries. That's a little different than when people merge things that are in a shared industry. Then after that, you had the Turner merger, which added a lot more scale to the network side, but it tied the whole company more to the basic cable bundle, which is having a hell of a time right now coming out in the internet streaming world because it's hard to shrink four or five basic channels like TNT, TBS, Cartoon Network, CNN into a singular or one or two streaming services. So that set of mergers, then AOL, the biggest internet at that point, and a portal company. If you think about that, that's an unwieldy group of conglomerated industries put together. And if you then say, well, what's the right corporate culture for that? And it's a different answer than if you're the Disney company and you can bolt on Pixar, Lucasfilm, Marvel into the Disney flywheel of family IP that's been going on for 50 years. So for us, and you know this from AOL, the culture and the core capabilities of the Warners were very different than the network people at HBO on pay TV, which has no ad support, versus the little closer to the cable cousins that Turner had down in Atlanta. And then the magazine people, which are different yet again, and a whole different trajectory. So if you're saying what to do with those corporate cultures, how much do you meld them, what kind of culture do you have? You need a certain amount of decentralization 
if you're in unlike businesses, they need to be separated at some point, not integrated in a uh, top-down thing. So you really looked at corporate culture by sort of operating group and looked at it more of handling a portfolio of companies than you did one overarching corporate culture, which affected all of these operating businesses. Well, there were some core businesses, Turner, Warner, HBO, that clearly could and should be operated together strategically. That's why we made them the core of the company. You couldn't keep the cable company in that because the cable company was too small and we needed to double the size of it for its own efficiency, but you couldn't get that through any trust. And so we had to spin it off so it could merge and become charter. The result was it became 10 times more valuable. The magazine company was irrelevant to any of this and needed to be separated and merged for scale with another magazine company. You could make an argument that the music company could stay in the Turner Warner HBO thing. I am not saying that you don't have a unified corporate culture. I'm just saying you have to do it carefully when you have so many pieces of the giant empire that we had to spin off. And, you know, if you ask, you didn't, I'll just say it because what I was thinking about, and that's what our shareholders were pressing about. We had to streamline the thing where there was no way we were going to be able to stay together and people sometimes say, well, you could have invested in this or that or defied the shareholders to a point. You couldn't because um, it would be easy to break it up. Icon tried to do it in 05. We beat him out of it. Murdoch tried to do it in 14. We beat him out of it. It was a pretty easy pitch for the owners to say, hey, I'll take it and break it up and we can get all this unlike value when we merge the magazines are good publishing or the music with a like thing and make it a scale play. So those are just inevitable facts. The Time Warner, let's say, was there when you inherited it in 2000. That was not a sustainable collection of assets. Over time, unless you had a, like a blocking shareholder who could turn down hostile offers because it's too easy to make more money separating them. And the proof of it is, frankly, when I got it in 08, it was worth, in equity terms, Time Warner, about $25 billion. But by 2018, if you had to share in 08, you had nine or ten times your money through all of the spins and the increase in the Time Warner core value at HBO, Warner, and Turner. I think you did, and I think everyone would agree, a spectacular job creating value for shareholders at Time Warner. And I think even the eventual sale to AT&T made an enormous amount of sense at the time, too. And for the shareholders, was a spectacular deal. Well, thank you for saying that. All of us thought, not just me alone, that we knew we couldn't stay Turner, HBO, Warner with Netflix coming. It was just impossible. So we needed more scale to invest in the streaming thing, because if we took it, the Time Warner earnings from $8 billion to four, which would have still left us at a quarter of the Netflix program budget, that's just not going to work. We'd have been bought by, you know, hostile offers and HBO would have been sliced off. So when we found AT&T, one thing is, yeah, they can write the check to, and they've got a big enough scale with a $300 billion company. They can take those losses and not have a 
suffering of the stock crash. They could finance it. They had a lot of cash flow, like $50 billion. A lot of free cash flow. We never thought that they would go and try to replace the management at Warner, Turner, and HBO. I don't mean just the top people, you know, that you'd always see that. But they went down and really lost a great deal of expertise in the top 50 ranks at each of those, Warner, HBO, Turner. And all those people were highly capable. They knew how to pivot into the new streaming world. And they knew how to keep the maximization of the old cable wholesale world that you know and I know. And it's not one versus the other. It's basically how do you do this smoothly and maintain maximum resources all the way along. And you're seeing it now because I was just out at Sun Valley talking to everybody. The streamers are fine. People always ask who's going to win the streaming war. Probably Netflix, Disney, Amazon, and HBO. But when they win, what are they going to, what's their economics going to be? It may not be anything close to what it was. You sat at the top of the pyramid for a long time, HBO, then eventually Time Warner. What has surprised you most after leaving the CEO role? It's really going to sound crusty, and it reminds me of something Walter Riston said. He was the famous head of Citibank back in the 70s. When I was a recruit there for my short time, he said to the trainees, look, you think that all your fancy analysis and all the modern skills, that those are the things that are going to protect and lead to the most success for this massive worldwide institution. But no, it's actually the character of whoever's you're dealing with, whoever's leading the institution. If you make a tightly structured legal deal with a bad person, you're going to have a bad outcome. If you make a loosely structured, sloppy deal with a good person, you're going to have a good outcome. You need to know the character of the person. And that's what surprised me the most, is it really makes a difference who's doing it. And I don't mean by that just the, quote, CEO. It's the people and the culture that are dominant in the company. I mean, if you ask me what's the one thing I remember about HBO, the singular thing is people could trust us if we said, we're going to do this, we would do it. It didn't really matter. It was informal. We owe that to Jerry Levin, Michael Fuchs, Nick Nicholas, Tony Cox. People stood by their word. It was the most important thing. And I still think it's the most important thing. So this leads us to how we end each episode. We give a shout out to the stars of the math side of the business, those analytics folks who sort of run businesses through the numbers, and those from the magic side, the promoters, the people who see and feel and touch and have these incredible ideas. Can you give us your nod, your shout out? I want you to pick the best mathematician, the best magician, so to speak. Well, these days I'm worried about the country. So for me in math, Alexander Hamilton. In magic? I got to go with the Ministry of Magic, Joe Rowland. Runner up. Michael Fuchs. I love that. That's very nice. Jeff, you have an amazing legacy. Uh, as you built your career, you have lifted so many others up with you. You talked about your days at HBO. There was that great sense of camaraderie and collaboration. Uh, you also developed and executed some of the most impressive strategies in media and entertainment. Congrats. 
And thanks for sharing with us today on Math & Magic. Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me. Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Jeff. One, retire the advice, fake it till you make it. For young people starting their careers, Jeff says you'll have an easier time finding the right gig if you're honest about what you know and what you don't. Two, character matters when making a deal. As Jeff says, good deals are made by good people. So the first step in every budding deal should be getting to know the people you're doing business with. And three, decentralization fosters specialization. During the Time, Inc. and Warner merger, Jeff learned that while you need some elements of overarching culture, specialized teams should maintain the operating systems they fine-tune for success. Parent companies need to play by the golden rule. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Susan Ward for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Marissa Brown for pulling research. Our editors, Derek Clements, Mary Dew, and Ryan Murdoch. Our producer, Morgan Lavoie. Our executive producer, Nikki Etor. And of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.